Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're talking about the Kingdom of God. And I've been, uh, we did Exodus uh, 14 this morning, and uh, I thought about doing another subject this afternoon, but I want to keep clipping along in uh, Exodus so that we can start doing more projects along this line and maybe uh, extend it out. So we're just going to take a quick look at this Exodus 15, which is a critical uh, point in what Moses is writing. And he's, he does something uniquely different in Exodus 15, which is they talk about the song of Moses. It says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And they spake saying, I will sing unto the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and the, his rider hath he thrown into the sea. And there's, you know, when I went through and looked at as many of the commentaries that I could find on this first chapter, and even when I listened to Jordan Peterson's uh, team of uh, symposium on this subject, I don't think... Anybody really caught it. I could, I could see some of the arguments that, you know, that, that we shouldn't be singing about the death of our enemy. We're supposed to love our enemy. Yeah. But what is really the celebration here? If we're not supposed to be celebrating the death of our enemy, which I agree with, and they were right about that. But what are they really celebrating? And, it, it is a realization that there is a God, that we live in an orderly universe, and if our lives are full of disorder, or we feel they're full of disorder, it's because we're not connected to the universe in the proper way. And of course, that's really the beginning of what Moses was talking about, is the fact that we weren't properly connected in the universe. So how do you get properly connected in the universe? Well, of course, originally we were connected. We walked with God. We walked with this unmoved mover. We actually, he walked with us. We conversed with him. We could eat of the tree of life and we were not going to die. We had dominion. We were given dominion. We were given a choice. We were, uh, Two trees were placed there and we could... We could use the tree of knowledge, but we could not use it as a source. We could not eat of it to obtain life. Life was obtained through the tree of life. And yet, somehow or other, the tree of knowledge can allow us to see things, figure things, calculate things, understand things. And God wants the universe to be understood. That's one of the things that... Uh, you know, Isaac Newton, I mentioned in this morning's show that Isaac Newton thought 
along with others, Copernicus and these others thought that that the universe, as complex as it was, that man was designed in the image of God so that we could enjoy the universe with God. It's kind of an interesting way of putting it. I, I, I probably don't entirely agree with that, but that that's because we're dealing with language. And what does everybody mean by enjoy the universe with God? Enjoy what we see with God. We know that looking out in the universe, sunset, uh, the stars at night, uh, warm winds, uh, this fresh uh, smell of uh, new rain, all these things actually create in us a sense of pleasure, a sense of joy, uh, reproduction, holding your first child in your hands. All these things give us an insight into this universe that gives us joy, that gives us uh Good feelings about what we are sensing in the universe. But the sensing is mostly coming through our senses, our physical senses. And so the atheist says, we don't need God. We don't need to be uh, imagining that there is a God. That everything actually exists extremely well without God. We don't necessarily have to understand everything Isaac Newton understood or some of these other scientists and the scientists today that are coming up with all sorts of perceptions of, of, of the world. I mean, we have, you know, all kinds of scientists out there thinking, you know, that are opposed to the existence of God and some that are now saying that no, well, God does exist, and and good science actually is evidence that God exists. And of course, uh, if God is the unmoved mover, uh, the the source of intelligent design, uh, can we argue against the existence of God based on scientific approach? What is the scientific approach? We talked a little bit about that this morning, that science is this um, look at things through a process, a method of analyzing. It's never settled. It's always re-examined. Even the most fundamental parts of science we must re-examine at times. There, there were things that were absolutely accepted and guaranteed and then we discovered well no they're not absolutely I mean the Greeks were looking and saying that the logos the the idea of design and and they were using as an argument for saying that there is this design this unmoved mover this god of creation part of their argument was the fact that the orbit of the planets was circular and they said that is that's the natural thing that it would be circular well, the reality is, is that they're not circular. <laughs> they're, they're elliptical. They're elliptical, so they're not really circular. But then again, the fact that they're elliptical is evidence of a logos that that there is, because you can calculate. 
I can look at this planet, I can look at that planet, look at their sizes, their distance, and through astrophysics I can calculate where they're going and where they are. And we actually calculated the existence of planets we could not see because we could see their effect on the planets that were in orbit. So, that, this is critical to understanding that science can actually prove the existence of God the same as it can prove the existence of an unseen planet. Because things don't operate quite like we thought they should. And, and Dr. Stephen Myers writes a great book, The, Re- the Return of the God Hypothesis. And he's written other books, Signature and the Cell DNA and everything. And, of course, he is suggesting that science is actually proving the existence of God. And even metaphysical things can be proved based on the scientific method. And, of course, other people, like Richard Dawkins, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no no evil, no no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, the truth is is that the truth is is that the this you know, the idea of blind pitiless when I heard that I thought the idea of blind uh pitiless indifference does not discount the existence of an unmoved mover by any means nor in uh, nor intelligent design in fact i said blind pitiless indifference is one of the primary skills of good parenting <laughs> which is somewhat humorous i mean nobody is actually blind and pitiless and indifferent to their children but at times when they're throwing a temper tantrum and they want their way and and uh, they want to get out of some they need to do. We have to have a little bit of blind, pitiless indifference to them and expect them to step up and measure up. Otherwise, we'll we'll raise nothing but spoiled brats. And a lot of the atheists I know do exactly that. <laughs> they either raise spoiled brats or they brutalize their children because they, because I guess of their blind, pitiless indifference. The fact is. That idea is, is really indifferent to the existence of God or not God. Depending on, it, it may be proved that there isn't a certain God or a certain kind of God or a certain morality of God that we don't, that I may not agree with. I may agree that they, I don't think that God does exist. I don't think we have a, you know, a, a God of, uh, of emotional uncontrollable reaction to whatever that they they can't help themselves <laughs> no the, the, they've set in motion this law of nature and by the nature of god the pre-existing one and we talked about this in a couple other shows touched on it you know what certain atheists think about how the universe came about and all this stuff but uh this idea of a meta Physical hypotheses are every bit as uh, testable in their own way as scientific ones because of the same reason we found Pluto. 
we can we can judge the merits of a metaphysical hypothesis uh, of a worldview by looking at the world around us to see if it matches the expectations that we think should follow if the hypothesis were true. And like I said, the Greeks thought that the planets were in a circular orbit, that a perfectly round orbit. And I said, well, how 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 God must have designed this to be a perfectly round orbit, except for it's not a perfectly round orbit. It's an elliptical orbit. But it's still moving according to the laws that are reproducible everywhere else. And whenever you come across a phenomena that shows that it doesn't reproduce, that is simply, that isn't proof that there isn't a design. It's a proof that we don't understand the totality of the design. <laughs> but the reality is, is that most atheists are just dogmatic about there can't be a God. Why? Because they don't want one. They want to be the God. They want to decide what is good and evil. They want to decide what is righteous. I gave the example of Sam Harris, who decided it was righteous to exclude anybody who didn't want to get a vaccination with a, an experimental mRNA vaccine, exclude them from shopping centers, exclude them from hospitals, exclude them from society altogether. Because even if it was found out, he even went on to say, even if it was found out that the vaccinations didn't actually do any good and actually did harm. He thought it was still a good idea to exclude them because they should know what he knows that you need to take them. But he doesn't know a lot of stuff because he's over there in that one little corner of the tree of knowledge and only has a limited amount of knowledge and the reality is no matter what you do, Every one of us is going to have a limited amount of knowledge. But if there is a God, the God of knowledge, the God of creation, the God of nature, would by the definition of the word have an unlimited amount of knowledge. And and this is what we're going to see is that Moses lacks knowledge. He knows he lacks knowledge. And because he knows he lacks knowledge, he goes to God and says, What do I need to know in order to solve this problem? And God tells him. We need to know that process of how he goes to God, how Moses went to God and asked a question as to what is the solution for this problem. And God gave him an answer. And he solved the problem. We know that all through the plagues and all through these events, that for most part seemed to be natural events that could happen. But how did Moses know they were going to happen? Was he a really good astronomer? Was he a really good biologist? How did he know all this stuff? Well, he might have been all those things, but he still knew and he knew what to do about it. And he says, who wrote the book, he says he knew because he went to God and said, God, what do I do here? What, what's going to happen next? What should I tell the people next? He's constantly going back to God and asking God. And he's coming up with the right answer. That works for him and the Israelites and those who follow him. Follow the leading of what God is telling him. 
Because he actually doesn't want to rule over the people. And this is one of the primary things that we have to understand, and we've repeated over and over again, is that somehow or other, Moses did not want to become the tyrant weak people would have made of him. He he wanted the people to have a connection with the divine designer, the unmoved mover, a personal connection. And that's what, you know, that Dr. Dr. Stephen Myers in some of his books uh, comes to the conclusion. And he's not alone. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people that admire his books. There's a lot of people that absolutely hate them. And, and they want to, you know, not only deplatform him, but remove him. <laughs> but, you know, he has a number of, uh, you know, credentials. But, um, you know, I mean, David... Uh, Gollerner of Yale, uh, one of the founders of the discipline of computer science, wrote that Stephen Meyer's thoughtful and meticulous book convinced me that Darwin has failed. <laughs> and, and of course, Myers wrote the book, it's a number of years ago, actually almost 10 years ago, he wrote Darwin's Doubt, the Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for intelligent design. That's not his most recent book, but but return to the guide hypothesis. I think is his most recent book, but uh, which is probably only a couple of years old. But very thoughtful, very thoughtful. And like I say, he's not alone. There's other guys, and maybe we'll talk about them another time. But we probably need to get into this Exodus 15, and and we did Exodus 14 this morning. And uh we talked about you know the water where they crossed and I put some maps up on our webpage at preparing you so that you can kind of see that there there seems to be that they crossed it the Gulf of Aquaba down there at the, the the wadi at the end of the wadi where where they uh were were crossing on sand on dry sand and I gave some thoughts about that in order to bring some of the things that I didn't hear anybody else mention. I mean, there's a number of things I could also bring up, but just the chariots, why they took off the wheels. What, what, because there seemed to be such confusion in most of the commentaries on why they took off the wheels. And, and I can understand some of the confusion. The, I've, I've driven horses with two-wheel carts, with trotter carts, with uh, bigger carts, uh, and with four-wheel wagons and with drays and everything. <laughs> and so I understand some of the problems and some of the solutions when you come in. Because I've crossed rivers. Matter of fact, I've, I mean, I've leaped into rivers <laughs> to get away from mad cows and crazy cows. And uh, leaped into rivers to pull sheep out. Who fell. That was. I read a book years ago about Abraham. I saw this book in a store. And I don't usually buy books that way. But I bought this one book. And, and matter of fact, I almost never buy books. I, that's kind of a deal I have with God. If you want me to read it, you have to give it to me. And they seem to come. I, you know, right after I agreed to that. <laughs> I mean, the day after I agreed with that, there was a stack of books on my front porch that reached almost three feet high, 30 inches at least, 32, 33 inches high. I still have a number of them here. Other books came in the mail, etc., etc. But... 
for some reason I, I broke the, the mold and I saw this book on Abraham and I bought the book and in town. And I might have got it used books. I mean, I bought books for the kids' studies and stuff, but they were all in thrift stores and stuff. So, I, I mean, I now have thousands of books. I don't know how many books I have all together, but I bought this one and I brought it home. And it was about Abraham. And, I mean, I'm going through, I think I'm in the first or second page. And they're talking about Abraham moving sheep and coming to a river. And the sheep jumped into the river at the deepest part as sheep are always inclined to do. That's what it said in the book. I closed that book and I have not read another word out of it. I said, this guy doesn't know anything about sheep. Sheep are afraid of water. They don't want to jump into water. Woolly sheep, they'll die if they jump into water. Because the sheep can end up weighing about 400 pounds once it's soaking wet. I mean, my big woolly sheep, they are heavy. I've rolled them out of the river more times than I want to think about. So, you know, no, sheep don't jump in the river. So, but here they have to cross uh, what appears to be 10 miles. Now, I mentioned that this morning and somebody I talked to later was saying that that's not new, that we've known that for years that they crossed there. Well, there are still people arguing that they did not cross there. And um, I said, well, you know, 40 years ago, that's not what you learned in school. And, and he says, well, Wyatt, that's what he was saying. <laughs> Ron Wyatt, that's what he said. And I says, was Ron Wyatt more than 40 years ago? Maybe, maybe I'm older than I thought. Well, 60 years ago when I was in school, that's not what they were teaching you. <laughs> okay, it was a little farther back than 40 years. Uh, they were teaching that they, they went across this water up by the where the Sea of Reeds are, where the all these reeds are in these swampy areas right outside of, you know, as you're first leaving Egypt. But no, they, they didn't. They didn't cross it till they got down to Aquaba and the Gulf of Aquaba and that, which is part of the Red Sea. And the Red Sea actually, as I said this morning, goes all the way, includes the Indian Ocean, the Persian Gulf and everything. As the word was used at that time that this was t- written down and taking place. And, you know, I pointed out that, that, that it was probably not a wall of water, vertical wall of water, on either side, and I explained all the reasons. You just have to go back and listen to that, and it, they'll all be join the network, and and you'll get those. And uh, talked about, uh, oh, you know, eventually, I, you know, you can actually, for some reason. Oh, Kevin Fisher, I do have it in here. Kevin Fisher, Ron Wyatt, David Roll, Tim Mahoney, patterns of evidence. These are all sources of, you know, the arguments for this other crossing location. And Mount Sinai was over there in Midian and where Jethro was. It's not out on this peninsula between Aquaba and uh, the Suez Canal. And so, yeah, they were doing their wandering somewhere else. And now we find rock carvings. They found a place that looks like a good uh, suspected place for the golden calf. And we'll get into the golden calf explain all that and the calf was you know representing this uh, god of prosperity Horoth and 
where Mount Sinai was and the uniqueness of the blackened rocks on the top of Mount Sinai and and um, there were other people who pointed out that there was a spot where the the sand and rock seemed to be fused as if there was a high temperature heat there or something where they entered into the water near where they entered into the water and his suggestion was it was this pillar of fire fusing them maybe and I warned also this morning that if you go and you listen to some of these recordings and a lot of people have jumped onto this and tried to create a whole ministry around this but ultimately it's interesting, it's fascinating, it's important to know that what we thought before may not be so. We have to be willing to adjust what we thought if we find new evidence. And of course that's kind of what the patterns of evidence is. But it's really, we need to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. That's where we really need to go. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is what is this song of Moses? Because in Revelation they talk about that. So also uh, we see sometimes um, Moses is told to speak to the people. Sometimes he's told to strike a rock. And sometimes he's told to speak to the rock and not to strike the rock. And so some people say, well, he did strike the rock. He struck it twice. And he got into trouble. But it wasn't because he struck the rock. It was because he took credit for it. And I agree. Taking credit for it is a part of that. And I agree with that. But he was told to speak to the rock. And he struck the rock. And he did take credit for it. So there was... What was going on? Why did he do that? Why didn't he know better than to do that? And what overcame him so that he was not the overcomer so that he did not enter into the promised land and the reason you want to know that is not to pick on poor Moses but to learn the lessons that Moses learned we we can learn everything two ways how do I say it easy or hard well Moses learned the hard way you can learn from Moses well we also are going to talk about eventually the the crowds, the uncut stone, the altars of sacrifice, and I mention these things because they're on the side panel of of uh, chapter fourteen. But they also have live links to or links. Some people don't like it when I say live links. A live link is a link that actually works. It takes you to another place. <laughs> but uh, altars of sacrifice what they were really all about, the free will offerings the uh, in the wilderness and uh, the practice of pure religion as opposed to legal charity or or covetous practices, uh, the Corbin of Christ versus the Corbin of the Pharisees, which makes the word of God to none effect. If the Corbin of Christ then would seem to make the word of God to effect, which would be part of your salvation. Cain, Nimrod, Sodom, and the bondage of Egypt are all on one column. And the righteousness of God and the Corbin of Christ and pure religion are all over in another column. And so by identifying, am I practicing pure religion or if I'm just practicing emotionalism, this is very important. So believing in God is not believing in the miracles of God. Uh, you choose to imagine, but believing in a God of life and creation and the law of nature that God created. 
and living according to the rules of that law of nature. And that's what Moses is going to be sharing. That is certainly what Christ was telling us. What are the laws of nature? How do you break the laws of nature? How do you abide by the laws of nature? And one of the things that you do to break the laws of nature is you take away choice from your neighbor. You choose other gods who are going to rule over your neighbor and force your neighbor to do what you want them to do so that your life can be more comfortable or easy or what have you. And the masses end up learning to bite one another through those covetous practices that makes them merchandise and curses their children. And those covetous practices are a part of public religion almost everywhere you go. So, with that said... Let's go to Exodus 15 again. We started reading that, verse 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. This is the first place you see a song written down in the biblical text. We've seen poetry, but this is actually supposedly a song. And it's written with a very interesting meter. If you're reading it in Hebrew, we're not going to read it in Hebrew. We're going to read it in in this translation in English. But this song unto the existing one. This is a song, really a song of praise unto the existing one, recognizing that the existing one, thus Lord, that his power is true, that his pattern is true, that his laws are true. And we're going to see them, not because... We made them come about, not even because Moses made them come about, but Moses asked the Lord what to do. Moses did it, and then the Lord did the rest. And we see the evidence of the existence of the Lord because on cue, what Moses tells us is going to happen. And we saw that in chapter 14 where he would tell us, then it would explain it, then it would do it. So it's a... A lot of the verses seem to be out of order if we tried to read them as chronological events. But it's very clear, you know, they're talking about, you know, the water coming in and drowning them. And then he's saying that the Israelites walked on dry land. Well, they weren't walking on dry land across the water then. That happened before the others drowned. So all this is showing that he's jumping back and forth like... Some of these movies where you see that they're, you know, is this is this now or is this a flashback? <laughs> well, he does the flashback thing pretty regularly. But he's giving you the whole picture and he, then he's going through the specifics. And everything needs to match up for one reason or another. And that's what I was trying to do this morning and show you that. But the ultimate message of now the song has to match up with the character of God as presented by Moses and as presented by Jesus Christ because those two were in agreement They're, the altars of Moses as they were meant to be are the same as the living altars of Christ as they were meant to be now they weren't as we see the Pharisees doing but Christ made it clear that the Pharisees got it wrong So now we want to get it right. If we're going to get it right, we have to look at what Moses meant and how men got it wrong. How they steered us away from the truth. 
and by doing so steered us away from the existing one, steered us away from the tree of life, steered us away from that connection that will show us the way if we be still and know the character of God. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and song and he is become my salvation. He is my God and I will prepare him a habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So the Lord, the existing one, my Father's God, and I will exalt the Lord, the existing one. So isn't their Father's God the same as the Lord? (laughs) Well, when he says, he is my God, we know that Paul says there are God's many. And we know that God's are ruling judges. We know that the word that is translated God, even in this text, is also translated judges. So, when he says he is my judge, it's because the Pharaoh is no longer their judge. Even Moses doesn't want to be the judge. Moses did, we'll, we'll eventually look at that, we'll sit down and try to settle all the disputes against the Israelites, against each other and the squabbles and all that kind of stuff. Because they wanted to make him a God. You decide, Moses. You go up the mountain, you listen, you come back and tell us. No, Moses want you to hear God direct. And so how do we do that? And that's where we're going. Eventually, once we get some of these other things out of the way. And the habitation of God, is that in temples made of stone? God never said to build temples of stone. Was it, was it, did God actually live in the tabernacle? Did he live in the, in, in the, the cloud of fire and, and smoke? No, God lives in your heart, in the yacht, in the divine nature of your heart. That is your connection to God. Now, he, the, they talk about the God of heaven. We could say the God of realms. The God of other realms. He's the, he should be the God of this realm, but he gives us the choice to accept him or not. If we don't accept him, darkness comes, confusion comes, mistakes come, and some of them we survive, some of them we don't. Verse 3, the Lord... Again, that Yad, Hey, Vav, Hey, that existing one, is a man of war. And the Lord is his name. Well, is God really a man of war? And what does it mean? Is man of war an idiom? Is that a Hebrew idiom? A man of war? A man who you cannot defeat. You know, a man of war is somebody who is very strong and powerful and you cannot defeat him. He doesn't want to start wars. And we explained a lot of that this morning is that that over and over again Pharaoh was condemning himself. Jesus tells us that. We condemn ourselves. But let's read through this song. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. Now, he didn't actually pick the Pharaoh up and cast him into the sea. 
but he was thrown down in the sea. He he was knocked down in the sea. He was overcome by the sea. But he chose to go into the sea. His captains chose to go into the sea. And that their their goal to go into the sea was to catch up with the Israelites and kill most of them. And only bring back those that are absolutely subservient to force them to work for them. To do their bidding. To subject themselves to their will. Like Sam Harris. <laughs> Want to subject everybody to his will. That's a spirit we're seeing over and over again in politics. Today. If you don't go along with their woke ideology, they want to cancel you. And the ultimate cancellation of a person is death. Now, they wanted to cancel the Israelites in Egypt. But they wanted them to leave. Just They said, we should have killed them when we, they first came here, but we didn't. Now we want to, yeah, let's just let them go and get rid of them. And as soon as they let them go and they actually leave, then they say, let's go down and kill them all. But when they made that decision, they killed themselves. Now, that doesn't always happen. Lots of people have been killed by totalitarian rulers. And people say, why didn't God intervene? Well, God didn't hear your prayers. And 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 they tell you in the Torah, they tell you in the Bible. Uh, they t- t- Samuel told you that if you go a certain way, God will not hear you. Now, a lot of people think, well, I'm doing everything that God said. I got all the leaven out of my house. Well, if you listen to this morning's show in chapter 14, you'll know that most people who think they got all the leaven out of their house haven't done what chapter 14 is telling you. You didn't get it out of your house. You didn't get the leaven out at all. You're still coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. So your house is full of leaven. Because you've worshipped the metaphor instead of the meaning. You served the metaphor instead of serving the meaning. Whenever you see that word worship, it has to do with serving. Everybody serves something, according to a rock star. (laughs) Everybody serves something. Everybody bows down to something. Some people think they don't, but I mean, even an atheist bows down to atheism. Agnostic the same way. So, all those people were drowned in the Red Sea. Verse 5, the depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. So they're celebrating that the universe is not just a random event. The events in it are according to a plan, a designer. He he may be indifferent to those who go against the laws that are put in place from the beginning, if and we'll see more of that. Let's get through this. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them 
as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright as a heap. The depths were congealed in the hearts of the sea. Now, we can go into depth uh, as to the floods stood upright as a heap. And look at the actual Hebrew there. Because that's one of the places we looked at the word wall this morning. And we said why it wasn't probably a wall of water. And it doesn't make sense with the rest of the material that we see there. But uh, you'll just have to go back and listen to that if you haven't already listened to it. But what is this? The flood stood upright as a heap. And the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. There's some interesting words. Now, remember again, this is a song. And so they put words in their to to fit this the singing, you know, just like poetry. And then translators come along and translate them to make them sound according to what the translator already thinks chapter 14 was saying. But if he's wrong about 14, he may be wrong about what 15 verse 8 is saying. And we'll probably come back someday and review this but right now we're going to read verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my lust shall be satisfied upon them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them, and they sank as lead in the mighty waters. So who killed the Egyptians? Was it God or their opposition to the law of nature and what is right? It was not right that they spoiled these people. It was not right that they put them to the sword. It was not right that they tried to destroy them or take their lust out on them. It wasn't right that they put them into bondage to begin with, at least in rigorous bondage. They deserved to go into bondage because they sold their own brother into bondage. And again, this is the cause and effect universe. And we'll explain to you why that is a repeated principle over and over again in creation, in the laws of the universe that control gravity and physics and cosmos. Ology and all these things. Astrophysics, it's all, it's all tied together. But what you do is tied together with those same laws. If you choose to do this, things will happen. If you choose to do that, other things will happen. So now am I saying if you're sick, it's your fault? <laughs> well, it could be. It could be a lot of things, a lot of people's fault. I mean, you could be sick because somebody created a new disease and threw it at you and maybe injected you with it or sprayed it on you. And your body reacted. It was a terrible disease and you didn't quite overcome it. I was talking today about during Chernobyl's, all these guys would go into the reactor to fight the fire and they were going in in rotation for a short period of time and then coming out and going back in and there was one guy who went in just as much as everybody else but he didn't get sick he died of old age not too long ago why didn't he get sick 
Most of the other guys died within a few days or a few weeks of radiation poisoning. Why didn't he? What was different about him? Good point of study. There's, but there's a cause and effect to everything. Try to find out why it is. So, they were covered. They sank in the water. Who is it like unto... You know, I can swim quite a ways. I can I can swim quite a few miles. But these guys, they didn't see him again except as they washed up on the beach. Well, of course, a lot of them had armor. A lot of the armor, you're strapped into it. You can't get it off. You're strapped into it from the back. They would strap each other in. They had shields on their feet, you know, uh, you know, if they're in chariots and stuff to protect them. They're not designed to run. And the fact is, is that the sand got so soft. I mean, it wasn't the collapsing water. It was the shifting of the water and the sand together where they, they couldn't even run. The horses couldn't run. The, the wheels didn't work. And so they they were actually pulled down by I mean some of the chariots had gold plated wheels. <laughs> That's not gonna float very well. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, amongst the gods? Who is like thee glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders? Now they understood this word gods at that time. That that was ruling judges. Pharaoh had all kinds of gods, all kinds of ruling judges. Now, they had, of course, when the Egyptologists looked at it, they said, well, we have this god of Horath and this other god. We talked about all the different ones that were represented by the plague, the god of fertility and everything. But they actually had human beings who were a part of religious orders who acted as gods, ruling judges over the people. That if you did certain things, you could be held accountable by the gods of those religious sects. Again, religion was how you take care of the needy of your society. And see, Sam Harris doesn't believe in God, but he actually believes that judges should have been able to force people not to go into hospitals if they didn't get the vaccination. Those people who had the power to do that, those are the gods of Sam Harris. Those are the ruling judges who will enforce the rules of Sam Harris. They understand that. Moses understood that. These are the gods you make covenants with and give them the power to make choices for you. But the God of heaven, the God of the universe, the God, the unmoved mover, the existing one who set things into motion... You can't really negotiate with him. (laughs) So, anyway, verse 12. Thou stretchest out the right hand of the earth, swallowed them. Thou, 13, thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto the holy habitations. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom 
shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Well, that didn't happen right away. We'll see how Edom wouldn't even let them cross their own land. Even though they said, we'll pay you to let us go across there. Well, if there is a God of heaven and these people were serving that God, probably not a good idea. But then, you know, even when I make statements like that, people, their brain falls back into the rut of thinking that God is up there like a big white bearded guy meddling in everybody's life. He's already set everything in motion. Now, clearly, there's a God who heard the prayers, the cries of the Israelites. And clearly, there was a physical something, according to the story that Moses wrote, that came along and helped guide them. An external force flying in the sky. Looked like a cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. Gave them light so they could travel night and day to this place on the shores of Aquaba. Through the wadi. So, and who was that? Well, some people say it's God. Well, it's some sort of... Well, it says it's an angel, which is also the same word for messenger. And a messenger for who? A messenger for God. Someone who serves God. Someone who's probably better at praying to God to know what to do and and connected to God in the singularity of God so that when you prayed your prayer that God would hear, the kind of prayer that God would hear, not the endless chattering and mumbling that often God does not hear. Somebody responded. Someone serving God already responded. And of course, that's where we should all be at. But we're not all there. But when, I believe that God will respond when the time is right. When the people are ready and listening, have eyes to See and ears to hear. In verse 16 it says, Fear and dread shall fall upon them, but by the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over. O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. The people of Israel had been purchased because God did all these things and he didn't have to do it. The same as when Pharaoh purchased them because they had no provisions of their own. And so they had to sell themselves a slave, give 20% of their labor up forever as slaves to Pharaoh. But this gave power to Pharaoh and drove Pharaoh mad eventually. And Pharaoh got more and more power, went more and more crazy. The same as we saw with Saul. It's the Saul syndrome. Power corrupts. But now God is purchasing them back. Setting them free. And and making them wealthy at the same time. Although there's no place to spend the money. 
better out of the desert. But they have more lessons yet to learn. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thy inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Now, that mountain, that mountain is people. That people have come together and formed a mountain. The same as the altars were originally made of living stones. The mountain is made of living stones and clay. And that, when the people make room in their heart for the habitation of the Lord, then they become the mountain of God. And although they are not indestructible with God, all things are possible. Verse 19, For the horse of the Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess and sister of Aaron took a tremble in her hand, and all the women went out after her with trembles and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So that's the song. And we need to understand what that song is. Let's just, instead of reading uh, verse 22, which talks about bitter waters made sweet, which is an important concept too. And that's why they include this in the story. This is part of the allegories now. This is not just historical content, but this is part of the allegories. What is the first song of the Bible really about? Are we to rejoice when our enemy falls? Are they singing about something else? And, you know, we can, we can go and read in Proverbs 24, 17, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Proverbs 24, 17. So that's, that's not what it's about. According to uh, Benson's commentary, which is, I could have quoted several of them, but I just quoted this one. It's figures are bold in this song. It's figures are bold. It's images striking. And every part of it calculated to affect the mind and possess the imagination. There is nothing comparable to it in all the works of profane writers. It is termed the Song of Moses, in which we see mentioned again in Revelation 15, 2, 3. But, is it really, is, the key thing is that these are, these bold images and striking and people dying and horses dying and people sinking to the bottom, is that really what they're talking about? They're talking about a cause and effect universe that actually works. And we'll see that over and over again. And if we're going to learn the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, we need to know what the Song of Moses is really all about because the Song of Moses is about what the Song of the Lamb is about. If we already are misled, 
or deceived about the Bible and the law of nature and nature's God and what divine will really is for us, we will likely not understand that song of Moses. And that's why I think so many people have a hard time with it. Matthew 7.12 says, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law of the prophets. So in other words, don't do anything to other men that you wouldn't want also to have be done to you. This is the golden rule. I have an article on that. I should link to that here. When Joseph's brothers sold him into bondage, they themselves were destined to go into bondage. When Moses saw himself becoming a tyrant, being corrupted by the power of Moses, both the power in his arms and and, and the power to judge and his position as heir to the throne, he saw himself becoming a tyrant and he fled to Midian. And it was a good place to go because he met Jethro, who was a priest who did not operate by force, fear, and fealty. When Pharaoh threatened to kill Moses, who was the rightful heir to the throne of Egypt, his own firstborn's life was forfeited. Because as he judged, so was he judged. Moses was firstborn over Pharaoh. And Pharaoh wasn't even the, that wasn't even the son of the daughter of Pharaoh that was before, which we've explained earlier. You can go back earlier and see what that is all about. Now in Exodus, we saw the heart of Pharaoh and his servants, uh, servant was turned against the people. And, And Pharaoh and his servants was against the people and they said, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? Not serving righteousness, not serving God. They just thought of these people who should be their friends and their their neighbor that they should love. They just saw them, saw them as an instrument of their own will. Is there anybody you think of as just an instrument of your will? Are you forcing your neighbor to serve you? If you're forcing your neighbor to serve you, you will not escape bondage. You, you, if you're biting one another, you will be devoured. This is the law of nature according to the God of creation and, and natural law. It is right reason in the universe of cause and effect to believe that as you do to others, so shall it be done to you. That's just how it works. So be careful what you pray for. If you pray for power over your neighbor, your neighbor will get power over you. The Israelites did not have to fight the Egyptians. This is what they were probably partly singing about. If they had the faith of God and they let God, you know, they didn't run out and usurp God, they could be defeated. And we see that a lot with the early church. Rome was defeated. More by the Christians than by the, you know, the barbarians. They were also defeated by their own lust and avarice. By their own free bread and circuses. They did not really have the faith yet that they needed, but God 
intervened in advance. Now, some of them may have had faith. We know that there were some that were actually beginning to get it. But a lot of them didn't get it. Kind of like back there with, uh, if if I can find a hundred righteous men, will you save the city? <laughs> if I find ten, will you save the city? So most of the Israelites are being saved because of a few. But I don't know if the people realize that. They did not really have the faith to realize that. Few people do today even. To have the faith, to live by faith, open charity, and give up the desire for benefits at the expense of your neighbor. How many people are willing to do that? Well, if you are, you need to come together in faith, open charity. But we see the kind of faith here, there amongst the church in the wilderness, and we will see it again in, in the early church when we cover that in the, in the New Testament. Again, it is written in, you know, Matthew 7, 1, judge not that ye be not judged. So as you judge, so shall ye be judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. This is the golden rule. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. This is a principle built in to creation. Just like gravity and physics and all that stuff. Now, a lot of the laws that we have, the laws of physics and astrophysics and all that stuff, many of them are being overthrown as much as the Greek idea that the orbit of the planets was a circle, a perfect circle. We know now it's not a perfect circle, it's an ellipsis. But we also know that other things that we thought about creation, about nature, are not coming true. And, you know, Electronic Universe guys are showing that, well, wait a minute, this is what's actually going to happen. Because more factors are coming in. But those more factors actually show the complexity of creation and therefore suggests more and more every day that there has to be a designer to have such consistent complexity throughout the universe. Wherever we go, wherever we look. Luke 6.37 Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. These, these are cause and effects. As we judge, so shall we be judged. That's a cause and effect concept. This is how the kingdom of God works. If we will seek that kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, which is not the righteousness of men, or certainly unrighteous mammon, and the benefits of unrighteous mammon, of wantonness, of covetousness. That is what destroys the masses. You know, as, you know, even Polybius, the, the appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them at, by the rule of force at the expense of others. It degenerates you. It will automatically degenerate you. And it will rise up tyrants in your midst. If you want to change the tyrants, you can think you're going to do it in the election booth. But until men change, governments will not change. You need to repent. You need to think differently. You need to realize 
that we need to go another way if we're going to be free. And like I've said many times, everybody's going to be free someday. That's what's coming. Everybody's going to be free, but everybody's not going to survive freedom. So it's not just about being free. It's about becoming a part of the perfect law of liberty so that you can survive freedom. Because the Israelites were not going to survive freedom until they started learning some of the lessons that Moses had learned. This is why the people need to learn to take care of one another without the leaven of Egypt, without that force and violence of public religion. That force of violence is not found in pure religion because pure religion is operating by true, fervent charity, not legal charity, which is where you find the cruelty and the violence and the force of a welfare system. It's why the people have degenerated. Why you have... It's your welfare system that has created the 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 homeless. They say, oh, we need more money to get these... Buy homes for these people and guarantee uh, wages and everything. No, you're, you're throwing gasoline on a fire. You're being a bad parent, a bad neighbor. You're weakening the poor. That was the sin of Sodom. That is where you're at. That's why we're seeing the same patterns. It isn't sodomy that got you into trouble. The sin of Sodom was in a time of affluence. You did not strengthen the poor. You weakened them. Because you weren't indifferent to their whining. They had to step up. And, And that made them stronger. The same as it would make your kids stronger if you don't spoil them. Do you expect anything but a spoiled population when you do what you've been doing for the last 50, 60, 70 years? The welfare system based on men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority without the the, the covetous practices and the desire for the dainties of rulers who use force to take from others to serve themselves. And they serve themselves because they, well, we've taken care of the poor because we instituted a tax that forces money from the rich. You've just cut your own throat. You're at, because now the social welfare system makes you feel good without you actually being good. Without the sacrifice required so that there will be life more abundant. Instead, you sacrificed others. You are willing to sacrifice others. And now, you know, like I said, Tucker Carlson, they actually said, let's admit what abortion is. It's sacrifice, child sacrifice. Why do you think there's so much child trafficking, young children being trafficked? Is it because everybody's gone sex mad? Well, yeah, that. But it's actually because of your social welfare system for the last 100 years, which started with public school and has progressed up to public health care. This is what's destroying you. 22, where we left off before, bitter waters made sweet. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, leading them from the Red Sea now. And they're on the other side, the Saudi side, what we would call the Saudi side today. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the water of Marah. 
for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree which when he cast had cast into the water, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. So we can look at that word prove them too. But I have statute ordinance uh, in, in the footnotes and I've been working on creating a page. What was he doing? Making a statute and ordinance. Let's go ahead and read at least through 26. And said, if thou wilt diligently hearken unto the voice of the Lord, thy God, this is evidently the statute, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, And keep all his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. This almost seems out of place. He's talking about making the water sweet. But then all of a sudden he says, I'm going to give you a statute and an ordinance. And going to protect you from all these plagues. Well, he's not even talking about plagues. He's talking about the fact that we're thirsty and we don't have any water. But of course, this is highly representative. Water, what water? Living waters? Is that the waters we need? How do we get the living waters? Because he's actually trying to tell you that. He brought you out of Egypt for I am the Lord, meaning the existing one, that healeth thee. And they came to Elam next, where were twelve wells of water, twelve tribes, twelve wells, and three score and ten palm trees, seventy. And they encamped there by the waters. So they got some sweet waters at Mara, but then they went and encamped by Elam, where there were twelve. But he said, he slipped in this thing about making this statue. What was that all about? And like I say over in the side panel, being thirsty in the desert can be a common theme. I've lived in the desert now for 40 years. Jeremiah 2.13, it says, We read here, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. So God is the fountain of living waters. And hewed them out of cistern, broken cistern, that can hold no water. Well, Jesus talks about living waters. Now, I didn't talk about the two things, but at least we're talking about living waters here. Maybe we can go back to the other. But what is living waters? It's like the tree of life flowing through you. Whatever power was in the tree of life and the Holy Spirit needs to flow through you. In the early days when the apostles had the Holy Spirit, there were some people who said, I can see that there's power in these people that is not a normal people. And they attribute it to this Holy Spirit. Now, of course, some people want to believe there is no Spirit. But that's where we, if you actually were around people that had that Spirit, you could see, well, wait a minute. 
There's no way they could do this particular, this, 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 this. No way that that could all, unless they had something else guiding them, which I can't see. Where did they get the insight? Who told them these things? How did they know these things? Well, there's lots of ways they might have known these things. But Moses seemed to know an awful lot. And he talks about the fact that the reason he knows it is because he talks to God. He asks God. And God gives them answers. We need to understand how that process works. Because that's part of the song of Moses. So, in John 4.10, we see Jesus answered and said unto her. He's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. If thou knewest... The gift of God and who it is that has saith to thee, give me to drink. Because he had asked her to, for her to drink. That would have asked of him and he would have given thee living waters. Now the Samaritans had a Bible and they knew that, that this living waters meant more than than just, you know, waters with microbes in it, you know. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living waters? Well, I'll leave it to you to go on to say. There's a link there on the page. I think I, yeah, I have it. So you can go on to read it. But the, the point is, is that there's this living waters. And unless you have the living waters, you're probably not diligent in hearkening to the voice of the Lord thy God. You might be keeping the leaven out of your house during the seven days, but if you don't have, if you don't have the cruelty and rigor of a system of social welfare that depends on men who exercise authority one over the other, if you don't have that out of your country, then you don't have the leaven out of your quarters. You don't have them out of the boundary of your nation. And so you need that. Well, you, you're not going to make everybody stop doing that, but you can stop doing it. And the more you stop doing it, the more power God will give you. The more protection you'll have from God, and the safer you'll be down on the shores of the Red Sea. And when those armies come against you because they hate you, because you're free and they're not. You already see that. People people hate people who are independent and free. They hated them. They, you think they just hate the rich? They hate the happy. And they will kill the happy. Because they're just too happy. And misery loves company. So, if you're doing... If you're going to learn the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, you will need to understand that Jesus and Moses' statute are telling us what? Uh, they're telling us about the same thing. The statutes of Jesus are the statutes of Moses. That's what he's trying to impart. How is Moses crying unto the Lord so that he was showing shown what to do? How is that possible? How how is he doing that? What method is he using? What how is his heart drawn near God? Well, we know that 
we've talked about that. Corbett, sacrifice. You have to sacrifice for others. You have to care about others. I mean, if you want to raise up your kids, you have to care about them. And some people think, and we talked about this in the last couple of shows, where somebody will be beat by his father, oppressed by his father, and he'll hate his father, and he won't want to be like his father, so he'll never discipline his own child. And he'll spoil this child. Or somebody else hates him and he becomes as brutal as his father. And he does beat his child. Neither one of them are good parents. Both of them need to become like their father in heaven. Because isn't that what we're supposed to be seeking? The righteousness of God? Both of them have to become like their father in heaven. Who's not beating you. I mean... God gave Pharaoh every chance, over and over again. But he did not get it. He did not take advantage of it. Instead, he dug his heels in and refused to see what was fair, right, and just. So he wanted to do injustice. So he wanted to murder the Israelites, suppress them, have their his way with them. Kill them. And so they killed themselves. You know, like George Floyd. He wanted to be high all the time. He didn't care about other people. He just wanted to be high all the time. And now he can't get much higher than dead. He killed himself with all of his drugs and all of his abuses of his body. I mean, he was a big, tough guy. But none of us last forever. You're, you're going to get older. <laughs> if you're lucky, you're going to get older. So, the time to repent now is not when you're older. The, the time now is to change the way in which you think. Allow God to make more changes and write His laws upon your heart and your mind. Moses was merely putting before the people how things work. He wasn't making a new law. And if you go and study our words on statute and ordinance and see that the same word that they put down there, statute, is sometimes translated ordinance, and the same word is translated ordinance, is translated statute, and sometimes law is translated statute, and sometimes a word that doesn't really mean law, but really means decree. Or maybe it does mean law, but it means law in the sense of the law of nature. It's it's written into the system. It's not a law. He's not writing new statutes and new laws. He's not changing the law of nature. Remember, all your rights, your inalienable rights, are a part of the law of nature. They're not a part of statutory law. They're not a part of ordinances. Those are privileges. If your rights are inalienable rights, they're a part of the natural law. Well, you're not going to be able to keep your natural rights if you're breaking the natural law everywhere else. If you're biting one another, you will be devoured. And you have been devoured. If you're coveting one another's goods, your own goods will be forfeited. If you're selling your neighbor into slavery so that you can have free stuff, you yourself will go into slavery. I know I've repeated that and repeated that and repeated that over and over again. But how many people don't get that? How many people should get that? 
and hopefully we'll drive more traffic here and they'll come and see and maybe maybe some of the people that are starting to hear a little bit of the truth out of people like well at least Jordan Peterson although I, I personally think he's being used sometimes he's kind of the uh, controlled opposition but God has his ways People are starting to think outside the box and pondering things. And, and people's lives are changing and turning around. We have to just help them finish turning around. And start doing what God and Moses and Jesus Christ have been saying all along. So anyway, I talk about the fact that the phrase translated, they're made, you know, as if he made a statute. Is composed of two different words given different numbers. But in the Hebrew text, they're identical. They had different letters, and I even include the Paleo Hebrew here, so you can see that it's the same word. Shin mem, shin mem, over and over again. Although, you know, your translators give them two different numbers. And, and they invent a very decent sentence that you can believe and and I don't want to retranslate it I'm just saying what the message of Moses is really trying to tell you is that he's not trying to make more laws and burdens on you more statutes he's telling you how it works it didn't change how it worked when Moses said it he's saying how it works and he discovered this by the revelation of God. And you could discover the same thing. And if you're still listening, maybe you are already discovering it. Moses is merely trying to inform the people of the law of nature from the beginning of creation, which is seen over and over again in the Bible scriptures and even in many other ancient scripts, such as the Bhagavad Gita and, and the Arthavedas and and many of these others, depending on who is translating it for you and how you're reading it. But they're they're really virtually the same messages, at least in part. I mean, Moses did a better job than most. Jesus did the best job of all. The problem is we have to be willing to see it and understand it. So anyway, but private interpretation is not going to get you to where you want to go. And I also talk about the, this word hawk, uh, translated statute with the English word ordinance, and I have so you can, which is misbot, and you can look those words up uh, on the page because they have the footnotes there, and uh, and where you see you know a word that's normally translated judgment is from this verb shafat and there's nothing more cause and effect than if you judge your neighbor so shall you be judged but we've kind of gone through this and I have a little bit more that I say there in the side notes but maybe I'll go through them I did want to mention the fact that they ended up in Elam where they had fresh water that each one had each tribe had its own well and uh, there were 70 palms now 70 palms isn't going to make much of a difference if there are millions of people or even 5,000 people whatever the number was but I think there's something significant in this is that they went from where the water was bitter and a tree made it sweet and then they went to a place where the water was fresh and it was enough for everybody 
and it had 70 palm trees. Is that representative of the fact that Moses would eventually appoint 70 and Jesus started out appointing 70 because at the time of Jesus, the Sanhedrin that was there disbanded because of the corruption in the temple. And of course, the corruption was inevitable because of the fact that they had built a stone temple and they had forced the contributions of the people through a system of social welfare set up by Herod that was fashioned after the system of social welfare set up in Rome by Augustus and eventually Nerva and Trajan and the rest of them. So, now we live in a world where FDR set up a social welfare system with men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority and we've become totally addicted to it. And it seems like it may be on the verge of collapse and they may be doing all kinds of other things in the interim. And so, anyway, the Song of Moses. Moses is just dedicating his life towards serving these people. I mean, eventually we will see in the coming chapters where he just wears himself out trying to serve and help the people. And and he's actually warned that you're going to kill yourself doing this. But the people have to start taking back their responsibilities, which is something that we hear Jordan Peterson say. Now, I hear him say it. I, I hear people like Ben Shapiro says it. But I'm not sure they're willing to go all the way. But I'm willing to give, take all the time to help them find out if they're willing to go all the way. Because if you only make it halfway across the Red Sea, you're dying with the Egyptians. There's, there's a metaphor and analogy for you. If you don't go all the way across the Red Sea, you're still not done. Uh, you're, as a matter of fact, if you don't go all the way across the Red Sea, you are done. Because <laughs> you're going to drown with the rest of them. If, if you don't really, not just metaphorically, get the leaven out of your house. If you don't really paint the blood of righteousness on your doorstep. If you don't take care of one another. If you don't start practicing pure religion, you're done. You won't draw near. If you're still practicing the Corbin of the Pharisees, which is the Corbin of FDR, of LBJ, of Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and Obama and all these guys. Oh, we don't want to touch Social Security. It's going to be touched. It's actually been touched already. <laughs> and besides, it was never there. Social Security has never, ever, ever been solvent from the beginning. Never once, not one day, has Social Security ever been solvent. According to the law. Now, according to your imagination, it may have been solvent and they pilfered from it. The fact is, it's never been solvent and they didn't really pilfer from it because there is no separation of funds. And that's the law since before they even wrote the Social Security Act. There is no sacred trust fund because your government is not sacred. Your government is in violation 
of all five articles of Deuteronomy 17.16. (laughs) And and you're in violation of the ninth and tenth commandment, the fourth commandment, the fifth commandment, the third commandment, the first commandment. <laughs> You're in violation. And if you don't understand that, go read our page on the Ten Commandments. Because we explain what the Ten Commandments are really talking about. Now, if you don't, if you want to believe that the walls of the water on either side of the Israelites were actually straight up and down vertical walls, that's okay. Uh, I don't require anybody to believe it. If you want to believe that all the water just suddenly just crashed in on on the Egyptians and drowned them suddenly at the bottom, way down there at the bottom of that sea as they were crossing, you can believe that. That's fine. It doesn't fit with the narrative of why they took the wheels off. But if you want to believe that, that's okay. But if you want to believe that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority one over the other, if you want to believe, if you want to judge that it's okay to join a system of social welfare by rulers who offer you dainties and benefits at the expense of your neighbor, contrary to Proverbs, contrary to Psalms, contrary to David, who said that such a table is a snare, and a trap. And what should have been for your welfare will be your destruction. Will will run towards death as the common purse. Runs towards death. But if you want to have that common purse of socialism, then you're not following Christ. You're not following Moses. You're not following the teachings of the Bible. I don't know what you think you're doing. But it's not the righteousness of God. You know, Proverbs twenty four twenty nine. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to the man according to his works. But I say unto you, and it's Luke six twenty seven. But I say unto you, which here, love your enemy. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. That's a lot easier to do if you're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. As Thomas Soul says, you can't get one single check from the Social Security, one single benefit from the government without plunging your neighbor deeper and deeper into debt than the children of your neighbor without cursing the children of the future because the debt is going up. It's not going down. And every dollar you take will be two, three dollars of burden upon your neighbor. Wanting your student loans, that's paid by the government. It's not paid by the government. They're not forgiven by the government. It's just put on other people. You're you're not going to be free. As a matter of fact, you're running towards destruction. Proverbs twenty five twenty one: If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. If he be thirsty, give him water to drink. That's Old Testament. There's nothing new in the New Testament. 
there was a new understanding, but that was because the Pharisees and the Sadducees had misunderstood the Old Testament. And many Christians today misunderstand the Old Testament. Romans 12.20 Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. We just saw them say that in the Old Testament. If he's thirsty, give him drink. Paul is constantly quoting the Old Testament. But a lot of people don't realize that because they think the God of the Old Testament was vengeful. The God of the Old Testament was indifferent to those who would break the law. But he actually went out of his way and those who serve him went out of their way to try and suffered for a season. That's what it says about Moses. He suffered for a season in hopes that people would see the ways of righteousness and follow them. Romans 12.20 goes on to say that when you give that drink and that feed to them, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head, your enemy's head, which is why the kinder you are to them, the more they'll hate you. The more you will need that pillar of fire between them and you. If you want that pillar of fire to be there for you, you need to have God hear your cries. So you're going to need to understand, and I'm hinting around about it, understand how to get God to hear your cries, hear your prayers. Because you can pray for all the right things, you can do all the right things that you think is the right things, but God, it's not our judgment, it's God's judgment. So you need to find out what that is and you need to set down a lot of baggage to probably find out what that is because it can only be revealed in your heart and your mind. So you have to make a place, which is what they've said several times here, have to make a, a place that could be a habitation for God in your heart and in your mind. You have to make room for God in your heart and your mind. And one of the ways to do that is to judge not. Like it says in Luke 6.37, Judge not that ye shall not be judged. Condemn not. Uh, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive and ye shall be forgiven. So that's part of it. But you also have to, like Moses was doing, going back to the Lord constantly and admitting you don't know the answer. And God has to give it to you. And then you have to wait upon the Lord for him to give you that answer. And you have to do it not for your own gain, but for other people's gain. Moses did not pray for a solution to the bitter waters for himself. He prayed because the people needed fresh water. You can't pray for enlightenment so that you can save yourself. You have to pray for enlightenment so that you can save others. That is absolutely essential. You don't have the great love that Christ requires unless you're willing to lay down your life for your fellow man. This is part of the way it works. And of course we see it in the herd. Evidently the dodo bird didn't learn this lesson because he's gone now. But all the other animals, they, they need to care about the other animals in the herd. They need to think of themselves as much as they think of 
uh, they need to think of the others in the herd as much as they think of themselves. And they need to come to their aid. We're about to begin lambing and calving. And uh, more so with the cows because they're out there in the fields where the coyotes and the bobcats and the mountain lions can come. Now, you know, generally speaking, a coyote's not going to pull down a calf, but a cow, but they will kill a calf. So you have to, and, and it's an interesting thing that takes place. The calf needs to graft to its mother first before she, she will go away from the herd, try to find an isolated place and have her calf. And then she'll try to get her calf to come to her, learn her voice, learn to suck on her. She won't do that in the middle of the herd because other cows will get curious and they'll hang around and confuse the calf. So she automatically goes away a little bit to have her calf and take care of her calf or nobody sees her do it but the calf. And that's a little bit what we have to do. But they're still part of the herd. They know where the herd is at. And then after they have the calf, they will bring their calf back proud as ever of their calf when they come back. But eventually you'll see certain cows that are babysitter cows that will actually stay with the calves and watch over them and protect the other calves. Even the bull will do that. Do we do that? Do we know who our neighbors are? Are we out there trying to find out people we could help? And and, and I, I see so many people now. They, they've got infirmities of... Uh, or disabilities, or PTSD, or bipolar. All these things are curable. All those things are plagues today in America, but all those things are curable. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction. All those things are curable. And by the same means. But you have to be willing to see the truth and to move in that way. So if you have kids and family that are having trouble with this, let us know. Get into a congregation. Help one another. So, I see no hands coming up. Everybody's still there. We're patiently waiting. But we're, we've gone over an hour now and I've got a few things to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll let you go. Peace on your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.